Hello? Okay, Verizon commercial here. Can you hear me now? Okay. <laughs> Want to get that started. I tell you, it's, it's been great. The music, it's always amazing how God just fits things together. Um, you know, we talk about the freedom we have in the Lord. Uh, there's nothing greater than the Lord. And how awesome is it that in spite of the fact that he knows all of our faults and our failures, he still calls us friends. But we can even go a step further. He said we're called the sons of God, right? We're more than just a friend to him. We're the sons of God. So for those who haven't realized it yet, I'm not Brother Justin, <laughs> definitely not Brother Corey. Um, so uh, <laughs> Brother Justin, uh, was him and sister um, Morgan were going to stay in Nashville another day or so just to relax after the Wedge Strong Conference. So um, pray for them that they'll get the relaxation they need. Poor Brother Justin, he was just running himself ragged and of course, Sister Morgan, she's always a busy bee, not a worker horse, but a busy bee. Um, we learned that too. So, um, so we had a great time this weekend. For those who made it to the Wedstrong Conference up in Nashville, it was a great time. If you didn't get to go this year, try to plan next year. Um, I don't care how long you've been married, there's a lot of stuff you can learn by going to that Wedstrong Conference um, because it's all the Word of God, right? And you can always improve, always improve. It uh, doesn't matter if you've been married for six months, you've been married for 60 years, there's always areas we can improve in, right? So, so I'll just give a pitch for that. And uh, so pray for them um, as they're unwinding from all of that because there's a lot of work that goes into putting those on. So, um, so I thank God for that. Um, I also want to say a shout-out to my mother-in-law and father-in-law. They're here today. That was a surprise. I was not expecting that, so I'm glad they're here, not to embarrass them. Um, but now you know there won't be any mother-in-law joke today. So... Um, <laughs> Now, I can honestly say this with them sitting here. You could not ask for a better uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law. I mean, they are awesome. Um, I have no bad jokes. I have nothing I could say bad against them. Uh, they are always very supportive of us. They're always there for us. And uh, you couldn't ask for better in-laws. So I think I'm, I'm thankful that they're here today. And uh, I'm thankful that God gave them to us, right? And so some of you may have different stories, and that's okay. Um, we'll let Brother Justin and Brother Corey talk about the in-law stuff later. So, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, and we'll just start there in chapter 1. As I was praying when Brother Justin asked me if I would fill in for him today, um, for those who've never had to teach or preach, the hardest thing is always trying to figure out what God wants, it, wants you to focus on, right? I mean, we have 66 books to choose from. And trying to figure out where God wants you to go. Um, and this is going to be a little different for those who are used to Brother Justin or Brother Corey. It's a little different because I only have one service to preach. So I can't take you through a dissertation of a whole book or anything like that, a whole chapter. Uh, time doesn't permit. Um, so I'm more of a topic kind of preacher. I like to take a topic and, and study it through Scripture to find out what the Bible says about certain topics. Okay, So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a topic. And as I was praying about this, uh, literally one night I was in bed and I, I just kept praying and asking God, what am I supposed to do, what am I supposed to do? And um, this word hope popped in my head, hope. And for the next, I don't know, week or two, that's all I was hearing everywhere I went is, is hope or hopelessness or people have lack of hope. And of course, we know this is a holiday season and this is always a tough time for a lot of people. And this is where we typically see a lot of hopelessness come, come to light, right? Brother Jerry was just talking about in the, in the men's prayer room and in Sunday school. He just preached the service, a funeral, of somebody who committed suicide. There's a lot of hopelessness in the world today, isn't there? And I was struggling as to how to approach this sermon and, and how to title it. I changed it a couple times. But I just want to start out by challenging you by saying don't lose hope. Wherever you are today in your world, in, in your life, whatever, whatever's in your life today, can I just encourage you by saying don't lose hope? Amen. Don't give up. So we're going to use that kind of as a, as a springboard um, uh, for the service today. So let's start out by, by looking at this. Now, uh, I'm stealing a little bit from Brother Justin. So if you were here last week, you know Brother Justin, he's been going through the book of 2 Thessalonians, and he's doing verse by verse. Uh, we did 1 Thessalonians, now he's in 2 Thessalonians. <clears throat> but it was cool because he mentioned this last week and just gave me more confirmation that I was on the right track. So, 
For those who were here last week, I'm asking the question, one is not like the other. So of these two verses, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, it says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. And then you go to 2 Thessalonians, same thing, chapter 1, verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So for those who were here last week, Brother Justin pointed this out. What is missing between these two verses? So let's read it again. In, in, the first, in the first Thessalonians 1 and 3, he talks about their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. You get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He's still talking about their faith growing. He's still talking about their charity growing. But what happened to their hope? Something happened to their hope. There is no hope mentioned in that verse. So from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians, something happened. And just for context, there's only a few months between these two books being written, not years. So it only took a few months for them to go from growing their hope and having hope to hope not even being mentioned as one of the things that they're focusing on. So from a biblical perspective... We see that hope is mentioned in 121 verses throughout the Bible. So obviously hope is an important topic to look at, right? If it's mentioned 121 times, there must be something to this thing of hope. And we always go to the law of first mention, right? So the first time you see the word hope actually mentioned in Scripture, it's in Ruth chapter 1, verse 12. And it says, Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope. If I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons. Now, a lot of us know what this passage is referring to, right? We've, we've seen this over the years. We've heard about it. You've got Ruth, her and her husband, they leave. They go, they, they sojourn into a foreign country because of a famine. And while they're there, Naomi loses her husband, loses her two sons. Now, her daughter-in-laws have no children. They have no husbands. And so she's saying, you know, even if I had hope, that I could have a new husband and produce new children so that you would have sons, would you wait for them? Right? So this is the context of that. So she, that's the first time hope is mentioned in the Bible in relation to her situation was dire. She had no husband. Her husband's dead. Her two sons are dead, and now she's left with her two daughters-in-laws who have no sons, and she has no grandchildren. Right? So that's the context of that. Some of you may be in that situation today, right? So that's the first time hope is mentioned. Now, the principle, the concept of hope is way before this, right? I mean, you see hope all the way from Genesis, right? When God, during creation, there's hope. But as far as the word hope is not mentioned until Ruth. So from a society's perspective, when you look at the headlines, here's some of the stuff you see. The mental health crisis hitting Americans shows no sign of abating with provisional numbers for 2022, showing suicides rose by another 2.6% last year. That follows on an overall 5% increase in suicides in 2021, noted officials at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which on Thursday released early data for 2022. Overall, 49,449 Americans lost their lives to suicide last year, up from 48,183 deaths in 2021. Today's report underscores the depth of the devastating mental health crisis in America, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy said in a CDC news release. Mental health has become the defining public health and societal challenge of our time. Far too many people and their families are suffering and feeling alone. And I'm just curious, how many here have been affected in some way, either directly or indirectly, or you know personally of somebody who has committed suicide? It's a pretty big number. Just in this small group, percentage-wise, that's, that's pretty low. Suicide affects a lot of people, right, whether we know it or not. And so 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point something out. They say this is a mental health crisis, and we'll get to that. But I say it's more of a heart crisis than a mental health crisis. Because if you have nothing to hope in, you can have no hope. And that's the problem in our society today. People feel like there is nothing to hope in. So, interesting fact, hope is mentioned four times in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and it's only mentioned once in the book of 2 Thessalonians. So, let's go through these real quick again. 1 Thessalonians, we just read this one, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love, and notice the next words, and patience of hope. Sometimes hope requires some patience. Hope is not immediate, right? So we see that in, in verse 3. And the hope is in what? In our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Then we see it mentioned again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope? So he's defining what their hope is. What is their hope, their joy, or their crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? If you have nothing else to hope in today, can I just say, your hope, if you're a child of God, your hope should be in the fact that you're already in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, go to the Revelation chapter 4. John already sees you sitting around the throne. Now, that kind of blows our mind that John, back in 90 A.D., already saw me, who isn't even in existence, or any of my immediate family, and yet he saw me sitting around the throne. That blows my mind. What's even crazier is he saw himself sitting around the throne. I mean, think about that. If, God, if one day you're just kind of in your, your, your Bible study, your meditation hour, and then God just comes down and says, I'm going to take and show you something, and he whisks you forward into the future, and you see yourself sitting around the throne of God. I mean, that would be kind of crazy, right? I mean, be, wow. But that's, what, but that's what John saw. So we should have hope in the fact that we're already in his presence. No, we're longing for that physical appearance for sure, but we should take hope in the fact that we're already there. I know that's kind of hard for our brains to grab hold of. It's a paradox, brother. That's why you watch all those Marvel movies. They kind of you know, go into all that paradox stuff, right? But then we see that hope is mentioned again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. But notice what the context is here. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. So the context is even in death, we have hope. Amen. If you're a child of God, even in death, or the death of a loved one. And, and, and I look at death a little differently because as a child of God, we should be looking for that moment. And even the Bible says that we're to mourn when one is born and rejoice when one dies. Now, as a human being, that sounds contradictory. That's backwards. We should be rejoicing when one is born, and we should be sad when somebody dies. That's not what the Bible teaches. Why is that? Because God sees death differently than human beings do. See, for a child of God, death is nothing but a graduation ceremony. We're just leaving this old filthy carcass behind and we're getting a new glorified body and we're in the presence of Christ. Who would not want that, right? So people look at me strange when I have a lot, like when my dad passed away and I preached his funeral, people were like, how did you do that? I could rejoice because I knew where he was at and he wasn't suffering anymore. My dad had a lot of health issues and I didn't have to watch him suffer anymore. I didn't have to watch him lose his dignity anymore. So I could rejoice. Yeah, I miss my dad. But you know what? I would never wish for him to be back. Never. I'm like David. I can't bring him back, but I can go to where he's at. Right? And so that's what my hope is in. My hope is in the fact that I can be with him one day. I would never wish that on him to come back. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.8 is the fourth time we see this in 1 Thessalonians. But let us who are of the day... Be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice what hope is associated with. It's our head. Amen. Hope belongs to our head. So when they talk about the mental health crisis, they're not completely wrong there, and we'll get to that more, but notice it's associated with the head. It's a helmet. 
So our helmet, our protection, should be the hope of our salvation. That's what our hope is in. But then we go to 2 Thessalonians, and again, there's only a few months that separates the writing when Paul, Silas, and um, um, Timothy wrote, uh, or, um, wrote Thessalonians um, and 2 Thessalonians. There was only a few months in between, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't a lot of time. So in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we see that their faith is growing, and we see that their charity is there, but they're missing the hope. So the only time in 2 Thessalonians we see hope we see it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath what? Given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Amen. He was reminding them. They've lost their hope. And he was reminding them that the hope comes from God. I don't think so many times we lose focus of that. We, we, we forget where our hope comes from. So what is hope? Well, according to Webster's Dictionary, and I always use the 1828 because I just think it's more accurate. Anyway, I know it's more of the older English, but it says hope is a desire of some good accompanied with at least a slight expectation of obtaining it or a belief that it's obtainable. Right? Why do you hope for something if it's not possible? I mean, as children, a lot of times we hope for the impossible, right? You know, I just want to jump off a building and fly like a bird. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's, that's not really obtainable, okay? We're not designed that way. Not without, you know, putting some jet engines or something under you or a propeller or parachute or something that's going to help aid that, right? So a lot of times as children, we have these, these crazy schemes and ideas in our head. Well, we really shouldn't put much hope or confidence in that because it's not obtainable. Contrary to what the world teaches, the world teaches, oh, you can accomplish anything you set your mind to. Well, that's not biblical. That's crazy. Okay? Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't have goals and dreams and shoot for them, but it should be something obtainable, right? So when we look scripturally, hope is associated with a lot of different things in the Bible. We see that, that biblically hope is associated with faith. It's associated with charity and love. It's associated with security. It's associated with strength and courage and substance and rest and mercy and happiness and gospel. So hope is associated with a lot of different things biblically in Scripture. So what we're going to do is just kind of go through um, and look at some things. So we're going to start with, why do people feel hopeless? What, co what causes that hopelessness in people's lives? And I'll, and I'll just be the first to admit this. There's been times in my life I felt hopeless. I'll just be transparent. And I know this sounds crazy. I had a good life. I was raised in a Christian home. I really had no reason to ever feel hopeless. But we'll talk about what causes that sometimes in everybody's life. And if you're sitting here today and say you've never had a moment of hopelessness, you're probably deceiving yourself. There's probably been a situation or a time in your life where you felt like, I don't have much hope. I don't, I don't see how I'm going to get out of this situation. I don't see how this is going to end well, right? So I think all of us can relate to this in some way or another. But first, what does hopelessness look like? And I had to put this in here as a defense because somebody warned me ahead of time that they may do something in the service. So what does hopelessness look like? I mean, if you had to look at that in the mirror every day, you got to say, this is hopeless. I mean, what do you do with this, right? <laughs> so when Brother Nathan found out I was going to be preaching, he said, Brother, I'm going I'm to yell out, let her rip, Tater Chip. And I said, remember, I have the microphone, so be careful. <laughs> so I had to come prepared for this. So, no, really, what is hopelessness? It's a state of being desperate or affording no hope. And according to the psychology today, hopelessness refers to a state, it's a state of complete lack of optimism or belief and our ability to respond to a situation. You see, you see the problem with that? What's the focus on? Our ability. Can I tell you that will always lead to hopelessness? 
if your focus is on your ability to do something, that's always going to lead to hopelessness. Because you and I really don't have the ability to do anything outside of God. Oh, we can accomplish some temporary tasks, but at the end of the day, the things that really matter, we, we don't have the power to do. What is it that causes us to get into bad situations? It's our own thinking, right? That led us into those situations. So it's the same line of thinking that got you there going to get you out of that. It's like the, you know, it's like the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over the same way, expecting different outcomes. That's the definition of insanity. Well, the same line of thinking that got us in that hopeless state to start with is probably not going to get us out of that state. So the focus can't be on our ability. It's got to be on something else. So, again, I'm not trying to bore you with numbers here, but just look at the pattern here. Those that are diagnosed with depression, the, the, the pattern and the trend, and I don't care, you know, about the demographics and all that. I'm just trying to show the pattern, how it's increasing year over year over year. The percentage of people being diagnosed with depression, hopelessness, and the number of people on medication and have been treated for that. Now listen, if you're struggling with depression, please understand, I am not trying to discount the fact that it exists. It absolutely exists. And there's a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's chemical imbalances, it's genetics, it's things we have no control over. I get that. So please understand, I am not trying to minimize this whatsoever. I'm trying to give you some encouragement to know that there is hope. Okay? So I'm not diminishing that whatsoever. I'm not making fun of you. Anybody who knows me knows that's not my personality, right? I mean, I make fun of Brother Nathan because how can you not? But um, <laughs> I'm normally pretty compassionate towards people, right? Um, so my goal is not to, to offend anybody here. It's just to point out that this is a, a, a growing trend in our society, and it's so sad because it doesn't have to be this way. And I promise you I understand this concept of hopelessness. Nearly half of U.S. teens report feeling sad and hopeless. Isn't that a sad statistic? Nearly half. The new CDC data shows 44% of teens in the United States report feeling persistently sad and hopeless. Now, that's not a shock to me when you look at our society. I understand that because they're told that there's nothing to hope in. There is no God. Our government certainly can't be the hope. And everywhere you look in society, there's division, there's distress, there's, there's all these things going on. So as a young person, what are you supposed to have hope in? If there is no end game, if the grave is just it, why would I have hope? Right? So I get that. But it doesn't make it any easier to accept it. Because it, it shouldn't be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. What are the causes of hopelessness? So here quick, for those who like to to do outlines. Here's your points for hopelessness. The first one is not focused on the Savior. What causes hopelessness? Not being focused on the Savior. The second thing that causes hopelessness, being focused on the situation. The third thing that will cause hopelessness in your life is being focused on yourself. And then the fourth thing, biblically, that causes hopelessness is focused on sin. So we're going to look at each one of these individually really quick. So if you'll listen fast, I'll talk fast, and it'll still take 45 minutes, but at least we'll feel better about ourselves. Okay, so number one, not focused on the Savior. This one's pretty simple and straightforward. If we're not focused on the Savior, there's nothing we can have hope in. Ephesians 2.12, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, what does it say? Having no hope. Having no hope. And why? Without they were without God. I mean, pretty straight, pretty, pretty straightforward, right? We don't, we don't need a theologian or, or a Bible scholar to explain this to us. It's pretty simple. They were hopeless because they, they, they were without God. You and I were without God at one point in our lives, and that's why we went through hopelessness, right? Because if there's nothing to hope in, there's going to be hopelessness. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others, which what? And why do they have no hope? 
have Christ. So the first thing that causes hopelessness is simply not having Christ in your life. Not having that, that assurance, those promises that you and I have, that Christ gives to us. What does Paul say? If in this world only I have hope, I'm of all men most miserable. If this life is all there is, why would you have hope? There's got to be more to life than what we see in the here and now. And thank God there is, right? And that, so our hope is in that, not in this. So you see this phrase, no hope, five times in Scripture, and every time it's in relation to them not having God, not knowing God. So first of all, we know you're going to be hopeless if you don't have God. Second thing, being focused on the situation. Again, going back to our text verses, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together in him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Brother Jeff preached on this last week. So this is a little bit of review. <clears throat> Why was the church at Thessalonica not hopeful? from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians. Because they thought the rapture had already occurred and they were left behind. Well, i got to tell you, I would be hopeless at that point too. Yeah. I'm just going to tell a silly story. When I was younger, probably 10 or 11, I grew up in church. I heard preachers preaching on the rapture constantly. And thank God for that. One day, I took my bike and I rode down the road and back then, you know, we could ride our bikes miles down the road, and my parents didn't worry about it. We, they knew everybody in miles in both directions, and everybody had permission to spank us and discipline us. I mean, you know, so, um, you know, back then it was different than it is today. But I can remember, I went down the, the road, there was a lake down the road, and I went down there to go fishing. Uh, my parents, my mom babysat for the people that owned it, so we had free reign to come anytime and fish their lake. And they had catfish ponds and everything. They grew their fish and stocked the, the lake with it. And occasionally, I would cheat and go to the stocking pond and fish there because you didn't even have to have bait. Just put a hook in. Poof, 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 you know. I wasn't supposed to do that, but I'm going to be honest. I did it a time or two. Um, but I can remember, I came home, and nobody was home. And I didn't know where anybody was. And for a moment... This thought popped in my head. This crazy stuff the preacher's always talking about, the rapture, we're just going to be gone one day. I'm thinking, the rapture happened, my parents are gone, and I'm here. This is not good, you know. And I was scared to death. And I know that sounds silly, but think about what's going to happen when that really happens. And the people who have been warned ahead of time, and they rejected Christ, don't you think there's going to be some hopelessness taking place there? Because they're going to know the truth. And they're going to know it's probably too late for them. So that's definitely a, a case for hopelessness. Right? But this is what the church at Thessalonica was going through. They thought the rapture had occurred and they'd been left behind. So of course they were hopeless. But what was their focus on? Their situation. They were looking at their situation and it seemed hopeless. And of course if the rapture had occurred and they were left behind, it would be hopeless. But they were focused on their situation. What about the prophet Elijah? I love reading this story because it's, 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 it's interesting. You have this prophet who thinks he's all alone in the world, that nobody else is standing for God, and he's all alone. And he gets this courage, this boldness, to take on the 450 prophets of Baal, which Israel had started following. And they go to the top of this mountain, and they're going to offer sacrifices. And Elijah tells the children of Israel, hey, whichever God answers by fire, let him be the real God. Instead of following all these fake and false gods, let's let the real God prove who he is. And so most of you know the story. They, they set up all, two different altars. And then Elijah says, hey, there's 450 of you guys. You go first. So they set up the, the sacrifice on the altar, and they're running around, and they're praying to their god, Baal. Nothing's happening. And then Elijah gets a little more bold, and he starts 
kind of being a little sarcastic and making fun of them. Or maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he needs to yell a little louder. Right? Or maybe he's on a long journey. Right? And he's making fun of them. And after several hours of this, nothing's happening. They're over there cutting themselves and doing everything they can to get their God to answer their prayer. And then Elijah steps up. They, they redo the altar. They put the animal on it. And Elijah gets a little cocky. And you know what? That's not good enough. I want you to just pour water all over it. I want you to just soak it in water. Because we know it's a lot easier to start a fire in water than it is in dry, right? So that makes sense. Let's just fill up a trench around it. Just fill it full of water. And then Elijah starts praying. Now what happens? God doesn't just take the sacrifice. He evaporates the water and everything. Just okay. I'm standing there. I'm like, okay, you're my God now, for sure, right? If you can do all that, you're my God. No, no question about it. So Elijah has this, this incredible victory. And he, and he goes in and he kills all 450 prophets of Baal and so everything associated with that. That's this wonderful victory. Then we get here. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Wait a minute. I, I thought you just had this great victory. You just had all this boldness, this courage. You took on 450 prophets of Baal, and now one woman comes around and threatens you, and you're going to run? What? Every time I read this story, I scratch my head. How is that possible? He went from victory to hopelessness in one verse. Do you get that? Victory to hopelessness. So if somebody like the man of God, Elijah, as awesome as he was, if it can happen to him, don't think it can't happen to us. So what was his focus? His situation. He was focusing on his situation, and that led to hopelessness. What about Jonah? Very similar story, right? Most of us know the story of Jonah. God commands him to go to Nineveh and preach to the, to the city of Nineveh. Now, again, if you don't know your history, the Bible history in, in, in Nineveh, Nineveh was a wicked place. And the people of Nineveh did some horrible things to Jonah's people. So Jonah had a hatred for these people. And, and many would say rightfully so, right, if you study the history and what, what happened there. But God commanded Jonah to go preach. Jonah goes and preaches, and then what does God do? God spares them. Greatest revival in history. <laughs> the whole nation gets saved, right? He only preaches, what, three, four words? You know, repent, basically. And they get saved. So we get to chapter 4, and it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and great of kindness, and repentance thee of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. Again, goes from a great victory. Now, in his eyes, it wasn't a great victory because he knew what God was going to do. He was going to spare him because God is gracious and full of mercy. But what should have been a victorious moment for him, all these people got saved. And all he had to do was walk in and say, repent. And I'm sure he didn't do it with much enthusiasm either. And they got saved. I mean, how many pastors would not give their right arm for that, right? Just come in, repent, everybody goes to the altar. Okay, now we're done, right? But Jonah goes from this victorious occasion to hopelessness just like that. And you know he's hopeless because he's wanting to die. That's, what always, that's where hopelessness always leads, to death, right? People pray that God will kill them or they'll just take their own life, right? That's what hopelessness leads to. 
What about Job? Job 3.11, we know, most of us know the story of Job. I mean, he lost everything literally within a matter of hours. Lost 10 children, lost all of his wealth, lost his health, lost his wife, lost everything in a matter of hours. So if anybody should feel hopeless, it would be Job, for sure. But notice he says, why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Down verse 25 and 26, for the thing which I greatly feared, this is something obviously he's been thinking about, came upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. Again, focused on his situation. I'm not saying he wasn't justified. But if all we focus on is our situation, it's always going to lead to hopeless. Because if we can't get ourselves out of it, we need help. Amen. What about Moses? Moses just came down from Mount Sinai while he's up there. The children of Israel told Aaron, hey, we don't know if this Moses guy's ever coming back. We need some gods to lead us. Aaron just throws all this gold in the fire and somehow magically these calves just pop out. It's funny. I mean, that's, what Aaron, that's how Aaron presents it. He said, all I did was threw the gold in the fire and this calf just popped out. I don't know. And God's saying, I'm going to destroy the children of Israel. And Moses pleads for them. And then Moses says, hey, if you're going to do that, fine, but go ahead and blot me out of your book too. Moses was hopeless. He just led these children of Israel out of Egypt. He's up on the mount for 40 days getting the Ten Commandments and the law from God. He comes down. Not only are they worshiping this false god, they're running around naked, having parties. And you can read into that a little more if you want. So Moses was hopeless. He, he just came from Mount Sinai, spending 40 days with God. How awesome would that be? Just you and God on the mountain, no distractions. And then you come down to this, and boom, victory, hopeless, just like that. And I'm warning you this. You may not be there yet, but if you're not careful, it can happen that quick. You can go from the greatest high to the greatest low in a moment if you start focusing on your situation. Jeremiah. But the Lord is with me as a mighty terrible one. Therefore, my persecutors shall stumble and they shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, that triest the righteous and seest the reins and the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I opened my cause. Sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord, for he has delivered the soul of the poor from the hands of evil. For, for context purpose, real quick, God told Jeremiah to go to the king, go to the people, and say, hey, you're going into captivity. Babylon's coming, and you're going to go into captivity. And God gave them plenty of time to repent. And turn back to him. He tells Jeremiah, go and preach to him. Jeremiah goes and preach. They don't hear him. And then Pasher, who's the son of the priest at the time and the governor, comes and takes Jeremiah and slaps him because he doesn't like the message. So, you know, let's hit the messenger because we don't like the message. It's like going out every time the postman delivers your mail and you see bills and you slap the postman for delivering the bill to your house. You're like, I don't want that bad news. I don't want to see that in my mailbox. You know, We don't strike the messenger, but in this case they did. They didn't like the message. And so they struck him. They put him in bonds. Next day they bring him out. And then Jeremiah proceeds to tell Pasher, hey, you may think you just got away with something, but buddy, you, you just entered the world of hopelessness because God's going to do this to you and your family. You're going into captivity and you're dying there. Okay. There's no hope for you now. And then you go down to verse 9, and this is where Jeremiah gives up, for a moment anyway, for one verse. And he says, you know what? I'm tired of talking about God. I'm not going to mention his name anymore. I'm tired of being persecuted for it. And he says, but his word was like a fire in my heart, in my bones. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't hold it back. And then you go two verses later, and he's praising God. Notice in verse 13, sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord, for he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of the evil doers. But notice what happened in verse 14. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. 
Let not the day wherein my mother bare me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. And let him hear the cry and the mourning and the shouting at noontime. Because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been my grave, and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my days should be consumed with them. If you didn't know any better and you just read this one chapter, you would think Jeremiah was bipolar. I mean, seriously. He goes from praising God, telling God's story, to I'm never going to mention this again, to let's sing and praise God because he's mighty and he's great, to why didn't they just kill me when I was born? I mean, he just boom, 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 right? You ever have those moments in your life where you just go boom, 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 boom? Your mood just doop, doop, doop. It happens, right? I mean, all in, a, all in a moment, you can go from here to here to here, right? I mean, it just happens sometimes. But Jeremiah was a great man. But he was focused on his situation. What about Jesus? I know. Okay, Brother Rodney, you're going off the deep end now. Jesus never felt hopeless. Really? Is that what the Bible teaches? What about Isaiah 53, 3 through 4? He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah was forecasting, prophesying what Jesus was going to go through. We get to Luke 22, 42 through 44. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's getting crucified. He's praying, and he's saying, Father, if thou be willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. If this is not a picture of hopelessness, I don't know what is. Now understand, Jesus in human form right now. He knows God's plan. But if he wasn't hopeless, why is he begging God to take it away from him? Now, he knows he's got to go through this. He knows what the end result is going to be. But in that moment, as a human being, he's feeling hopeless. And that's why he's praying earnestly. Have you ever prayed so hard that your sweat became drops of blood? I, I don't know what other condition hopelessness would create. I mean, that's a, a pure, a true sign of hopelessness. Now, again... As God the Father, as part of the Godhead, he knew the plan. He had to go through it. He had to be obedient. But as a human in human form, he suffered hopelessness to show us that there's hope. Does that make sense? But Jesus, at that moment, was focused on his situation. He was about to go to the cross. How many of us would feel hopeless at that point? <laughs> right? We'd be looking for a way out of this thing. We're not voluntarily going. It's going to seem hopeless to us. But it's because we're focused on our situation. We're not focused, as was said in Wedstrong this, this past weekend, many, many times, we're not focused on the mission. We're focused on the situation, right? So the next thing, focus on ourself. So I'm just going to start out really quick and say that self-focus is not a biblical principle. God never teaches you to focus on yourself. What do we call that word when we're focused on ourselves? Selfishness. And I would, I, would, I would say that the biggest problem in our society today is that one word, selfishness. It's all about me. I want that instant gratification. I want it. I want it now. I'm not going to wait for it. And I'm just going to tell you on the authority of the Word of God, self-focus is not biblical. I don't care what all the psychologists tell you, it is not a biblical principle. Colossians 2.20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? Colossians 3.3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. How can a dead man focus on himself? If you're dead, you can't focus on anything. You're dead. When you become a child of God, you belong to Christ. The Bible says we belong to Him. He paid our debt for us, 
We now belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves. So if our focus is on us, we're not focused on him, and we're not accomplishing what he has for us. And that will lead to hopelessness every time. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? How much clearer could he say that? I mean, if you were writing this verse, how, how would you state that any clearer? You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. And our world teaches just the opposite. Why do you think there's so much... I don't even know what the right word is. Craziness over abortion, over the transgender movement, over the homosexual movement. It's all about pleasing themselves. This is my body. I can do whatever I want to. Well, if you're lost, yeah, go right ahead. But if you're a child of God, you should not fall in that trap. And you should not support that because that is not biblical whatsoever. Matter of fact, if you'll study scripture, God speaks very harshly about those things. And that's what, that's what bothers me. All these people who claim to be Christians backing these movements, voting for these types of things. If you are doing that, you are going directly against the word of God. And there's going to be consequences to that. Be very careful about that. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Just for the record, we're definitely in the last days. Okay? If you want to know more about that, come to my Sunday school class. We're covering this right now. Um, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heedy, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What does it tell us to do? Turn away from that. We're not supposed to be associating with it. We're not supposed to be focused on it. Self-focus always leads to destruction. Romans 8, 1, and then we'll jump down to verse 4 and 7. There is therefore no now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but as in the Spirit. It's one of my favorite verses to know that I'm not condemned anymore. Even though I'm still a sinner, there's no condemnation to me as a sinner because Christ has already paid that price. That's under the blood, right? That doesn't mean I shouldn't still confess my sins because I fall short every day because as long as we're in this flesh, we're going to fall short. But God says we can confess our sins and he'll forgive us. Then verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. Catch that. When you're focused on yourself, what are you being? Carnally minded. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. You cannot focus on yourself and be the friend of God. They're contrary. They're, they're polar opposites. Romans 12, 1 through 3, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There again, the association of the mind to this hope thing, right? You've got to renew your mind. You've got to be thinking about it the right way. You can't be focused on your situation. You can't be focused on yourself. You've got to renew your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Man, we live in a society of people who think a lot about themselves. Oh, my goodness. Everywhere you look, people think very highly of themselves. Well, I am the expert because I went to some stupid school and got a piece of paper. Therefore, I'm the expert and you should listen to me. Oh, my goodness, it makes me want to gag every time I hear that. You're an expert in stupidity. That's all you are. Because common sense would tell you what, what you're saying doesn't even make sense, right? But we're not to think more highly of ourselves because the focus should be on him, not on us. Romans 12.10, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor. What does this say? Preferring one another. If I'm focused on myself, how can I prefer you? 
how can I put you above me if I'm focused on myself? Now, don't get me wrong. There are things we have to take care of in our life. I have a wife to take care of. I have children to provide for, right? I have a home to take care of. So there are some things I have to focus on that God expects me to. But the focus can't be on me and my situation. All of those things God will take care of if I allow him to. If I put my focus on him, he'll make sure those things are taken care of. What about Gehazar? A lot of us know who Gehazar is. But Gehazar was basically the apprentice of Elisha. And you have the story where Naaman comes to Elisha to get healed of his leprosy. Elisha tells him what to do. He goes and does it. He gets healed of his leprosy. He comes back. He wants to pay the man of God for his services as a thank you for healing him of leprosy. And we know Elisha didn't heal him. God did. Elisha was just a mouthpiece, right? So then we get here. And Gehazi doesn't like the fact that Elisha doesn't take any of the money that Naaman is offering him. And Elisha's like, wait a minute, that, that's not right. You just healed him. You should take something from him, right? So then but it says, but, but, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian, and not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. And he said, All is well, my master has sent me, saying, Behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Gehazi was focused on himself, on his physical needs and wants, his desires. And where did it lead? Hopelessness. So now, when he gets back to the camp, Elisha said, Where did you go? What do you mean? I didn't go anywhere. Come on, dude. I know exactly. <laughs> I know that you went somewhere. I saw it. And so Elisha pronounced on Gehazi and his family after him that he would always have leprosy in his home because he focused on himself and his desires. He chased it, ran after it, and it led to hopelessness. Being focused on yourself is always going to lead to hopelessness. What about Judas Iscariot? He's a man who walked Christ at least for three years, saw all the miracles that he did, saw how great of a man he was, saw that he was God. And what did he do? He runs to the chief priest and says, hey, I'll, I'll betray him. What are you going to pay me? And most of us know the story. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was focused on his own desires. He wanted that money. But where did it lead? He realized he messed up, and it led to a hopeless situation for him. And he went and hanged himself, because there was no hope for him at that point. He rejected Christ. You may be sitting here today, and you say, well, I don't know about this Christ thing. I'm just going to wait and see what happens. Be careful. You reject Christ, it will lead to a hopeless situation for all eternity, not just the here and now. You reject Christ, there is no hope for you. Focus on sin is the third thing, and we're going to kind of quickly go through this. But we see that sin is always a separator. If you have sin in your life, you're always going to be separated from Christ. This goes all the way back to Genesis. First thing that happened when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked. And what did they do? They hid from God. The first act of sin, what does it call? Separation from God. And this will always, always happen. Isaiah 59, 1-4, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. Notice what it says. It didn't say he can't hear you. He will not hear you. Sin is a separator. It'll separate us from our loved ones. It'll separate us from God. And as long as there is sin, unrepentant sin in your life, and I'm not talking to the world here. I'm not talking to the lost people. I'm talking to saved people. You know, well, Brother Rodney, you just said I'm saved and my sins are covered under the blood. They are. But it'll still separate you. As long as you have that active sin in your life, that unrepentant sin, God's not going to hear you. You've got to get rid of that sin first. 
And God is very quick to forgive us. But we've got to be willing to humble ourselves and approach the throne and ask for that forgiveness. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you that were sometimes alienated enemies in your mind. Again, that mind association here. By wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Why did Christ have to die on the cross for you and I? Because we were separated from the love of God. Christ was that bridge to bring us back, to bring our spirit back into connection with God. He became our cell phone to God. Right? He made that connection for us. 1 John 1, 6-9. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But here's, here's the hope. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is written to the church, not to the lost people. Even though we're saved, we sin, we fall short, but he gives us hope. If we confess it, he'll forgive us. Psalm 51. Um, this is David's. Uh, just write this down and go back and, and read it later. We're out of time here. But David is in a hopeless situation. He sinned. He got another man's wife pregnant. He had that man killed. And now he's begging God to spare that child's life. He's in a hopeless situation. But David, in this book of Psalms here, he, he confesses it. He humbles himself before God. And he has hope. He's telling God, restore that joy, that gladness to me. Please get rid of that sin in my life. Hide those iniquities from me. Create in me a clean heart. If you want to have that relationship back with Christ, You've got to have that clean heart. You've got to renew that mind and seek him. So quickly, we're almost over. How to have hope. I was laying in bed, and the night that, that word hope popped in my head, I'm not exaggerating, this exact phrase popped in my head with it. I haven't read this anywhere, it just popped in my head. So hope is an acrostic, happiness over potential expectation. So the source of hope, Psalm 71.5, For thou art my hope, O Lord God, thou art my trust from my youth. I mentioned this to a couple of young men up at Wedstrong this week. I said, you don't know how blessed you are to be sitting in a conference like this at your age, learning the truth that you're learning right now. Think about how much disappointment, how much anguish and grief we could have been spared if all of us had known those truths that early in our lives. There was a 17-year-old up there, not even married. She's like, I just want to know what this stuff is before I get married. How awesome. Right? And there were other young men there that just got married. And I said, you, you should take advantage of this. To have access to these truths at this age in your life it's going to spare you from so many things if you will apply it. Jeremiah 17, 17, Be not a terror unto me, thou art my hope in the day of evil. Listen, we're all going to have troubles, we're all going to have trials and tribulations, but know when those days come that our hope is in Him, it's not in us. It's not about us. It's in Him. What about the secret for hope? Psalm 33, 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that what? Fear him. Upon them that have hope in his mercy. God is full of grace and mercy. And even though we fall short and we mess up and we make mistakes, you know what? We have hope in knowing that God is a God of mercy and he forgives. We just got to be able to humble ourselves. Psalm 38, 15, For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou will hear, O Lord, my God. The focus is on him, not on us. Psalm 39, 7. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. 1 Peter 1, 21. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. What does it say? That your faith and your hope might be in God. 
And then finally, the success of hope. Psalm 16, 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. You want to have success with hope? There you go. You want to have a glad heart? You want to be able to rejoice? You want to have rest? Your hope has to be in Him. Psalm 31, 24. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. You want a strong heart? Hope in Him. Isaiah 26, 3, and we're finished. Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace. When we do what? When our mind is stayed on Him. Because our trust is in Him, nothing else. If we will just get that down, I don't care what your situation is today, I don't care what you're going through in life, if you will understand that He should be our focus, and He alone, then we can have hope all our life. We don't have to be like the world and be hopeless all the time. We may have stages where we're hopeless, but it's because our focus is on ourselves, it's on our situation, or because there's sin in our life. But we can have hope in Him if we'll put our focus on Him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I want to thank you for this time together, and thank you for your word. And God, we are so very grateful that we can have hope in you. God, this world doesn't really offer us any hope. Lord, everything is temporary, and Lord, it's all carnally minded. But God, we know that if we'll put our faith, our confidence, our trust, and our hope in you, God, that that is eternal. And Lord, I just pray that whatever somebody may be going through today, God, you know the burdens, the desires of everybody here. Whatever they may be, God, I just pray that you give them that hope. Help them understand what the focus needs to be. Lord, if we'll just take our eyes off the world, off the situations, and just put our focus on you. God, renew our minds. Renew our hearts, Lord. God, we know that we can have hope. Lord, I just pray that you would bless this time together. Speak to the hearts according to each need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.